Hi, my name is Mary. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 23, verses 1 to 2 and 19 to 20. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. After this, Abram buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that it is in were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Bill. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 1, 10 through 14. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. We have also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance which is applied toward our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Etienne. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John chapter 16, verses 19 through 22. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said, Are you trying to find out from each other what I meant when I said, Soon you won't see me, but soon after that you will see me? I assure you, you will cry and lament, and the world will be happy. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Look, when a woman gives birth, she has pain because her time has come. But when the child is born, she no longer remembers her distress, because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. In the same way, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and you will be overjoyed, and no one will take away your joy. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. So, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we hear it this morning, that your spirit would allow it to, to take up residence deep inside our hearts that it would go down deep and take root and cause us to be able to bear fruit and to be made more like Christ Jesus, your Son. We pray these things in His name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're in uh, week 12 here of this series through the book of Genesis, really through the life of Abraham, and we've called it the story of us because it's not just Abraham's story. Uh, it is in a very real way the story of humanity in general, but actually 
the story of the people of God in particular. Uh, this is a way of kind of finding ourselves in the story to say, in Christ, we join this big salvation story that God has been at work in the world doing uh, and, and redeeming from the very beginning. Now, I, um, I grew up, um, when, I, when I was fairly little, I grew up around a kind of Christianity that was very comfortable with uh, an active God, a God that is working, you know. So some of you might understand if I say charismatic church or Pentecostal church. It was not a strange thing for me to believe that when we prayed, God listened. And not just that God listened, but that God spoke. And so I remember many times, even as a child, being away at these um, children's ministry camps and retreats, and, and the teachers and the leaders would, would have us as kids uh, sit and just kind of wait as the music played and to say, children, would you listen and would you see if God would speak to you? And so I learned from an early age that God is not silent. He's a speaking God. He's not a distant God. He's near. He's active. He's right here in the moment. I also got to witness people praying for the sick and watching them recover. I got to see people give words of knowledge or have an impression or a phrase dropped in their heart and then share it with a person and watch it all of a sudden unlock something in the person that heard the word. I grew up believing that God really does do these things today, that He is active in our lives and in our world and in our faith. But it was later on in life when I moved away to come to college that I encountered a different variation of this. Not just that God could and would heal, but that God had to heal, that God must heal. Not just that God wanted to bless us, but that God was obligated to bless us. It was a little shift. It can seem like a little shift, but it was a major shift in thinking from from, from saying God is a good God and God is able to do this versus saying God must do this. And I I discovered for some people that when when they'd sort of put themselves in this corner, that then all of a sudden when things didn't go quite the way they thought it should, they were left with the dilemma. Either they were wrong or God was wrong, and they couldn't possibly say God was wrong, and so therefore they must have done something wrong. It was amazing to me to meet people who were maybe the most positive Christians I'd ever met, because you would ask them, how are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I mean, they're going through such difficult circumstances, and for many of these people, actually, their response was just about perspective. They didn't actually think that God owed them a happy life. For many of them, they didn't actually believe that they were guaranteed certain things. They just had the kind of perspective on life that said, hey, I'm trusting the Lord, so hey, I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm blessed. And it was really a beautiful thing to see. But for other people, perhaps many other people, it it wasn't really that. It was when they said, I'm blessed, what they were really saying is they were trying to somehow use words to control their reality and to make sure that nothing bad would ever happen to them. It's interesting if you ever read the message paraphrase of the book of Jeremiah, the false prophets in the message paraphrase of Jeremiah say to Israel, say to the people of Jerusalem, nothing bad will ever happen to you. It's it's, it's fascinating because... Those preachers still exist today. They want us to believe that, look, if you follow God and if you say this, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And so I met people for the first time in my early 20s, and a little younger than that, I met people that I'd never encountered before, people who believed that if you were sick, you should never say you're sick. You should say, I am well, but you just don't see it right now as I'm hacking a lung out, you know. 
You couldn't make any negative confession because you didn't want to spook or somehow derail your future, and so you had to speak. It was a, it was a bit of Norm Vincent Peale positive confession stuff mixed with a little bit of, of, of stuff taken out of context to say that the blessed life is a life in which nothing bad ever happens. And if it does, it's your fault. It's your fault for not believing. It's your fault for not saying the right things. It's your fault for not controlling your destiny. Now, here we are in the story of Abraham. If there ever was a man who was blessed, it was Abraham. If there ever was a story of an individual who represents the blessed life, it's Abraham. He is the original, right? He is the one called out of his father's house, promised an inheritance, promised descendants. He is the, the New Testament refers back to him and says it's the blessing of Abraham. This is the original blessed life. And so the question we're grappling with today is, is there any room for sorrow in the blessed life? Is there any room for things to not work out the way you had thought they were going to work out? And if it, things don't work out, is it your fault? Is it God's fault? How do we respond when things don't go according to plan? We've already so far in the story of Abraham encountered Abraham's own sins. We've encountered his fear. We've watched him make many mistakes. We've watched God's grace come in anyway and rescue and redeem. We've watched God working over and against his own fear, Abraham's own fears. We've watched God working in the midst of a mess. But now the question is, how does Abraham deal with sorrow? And for all of us, maybe this is a timely question because Thanksgiving is a few weeks away. and There's something about the holidays that can brighten our spirits and yet also remind us of a loss and remind us of sadness. And I want to talk this morning about what it means to grieve well. What does it mean to grieve well? Genesis chapter 23, verse 1 through 2. Just listen to the first couple of verses. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, first, a couple things. One, this is the only woman in the Old Testament narratives that it, it takes this much trouble to mark the end of her life. In other words, Sarah is not a bit player. She's not incidental. She is a matriarch of the faith. Her life matters. This is not some side story. This is a key part of God's redemptive story. And secondly, it says that Abraham mourned for Sarah and went in to weep for her. A lot, a lot of times we might think, well, now, now wait a minute. I mean, she was old, 127 years old. We don't know exactly how ages work in these Old Testament narratives, whether they're, they're sort of just representative ages. But either way, you get the sense that it's at the end of her life. And yet, Abraham has sorrow. I want to say to you, the first key, the first thing about grieving well is that it requires mourning the loss. You have to mourn the loss. You can't minimize the loss. We would be tempted, if this was us, we would be tempted to say, well, she was old. It was bound to happen. I mean, what, do you think she was going to live forever? And yet, there's something here to mourn. And maybe not just the death itself. But did you know that when God spoke to Abraham and Sarah, he promised them two things, a descendant or many descendants and land. 
Sarah got to see Isaac. She got to give birth to Isaac. But Sarah did not get to see the promised land becoming theirs. In other words, she died before it fully came about. Her death was, a, was, a, was a, a, a kind of cutting short, of coming up short. They were promised two things, land and an inheritance. And here she is, she's dying. Yes, she's got Isaac, but she doesn't yet have the promised land. I would like to suggest to you that death, whenever it happens, is a cutting short of life. That actually every death is tragic because every life is sacred. Every death is tragic because every life is sick. There is no minimizing here. And let's say it, from the womb to the tomb. Every life is sacred and every stage of this life. So you can mourn a miscarriage. And you can mourn the loss of someone who's 90 years old. You don't have to minimize it. So, well, that wasn't really. And well, I don't, you know, I don't suppose. And, you, know. you can mourn every loss Every death is tragic because every life is sacred. And Abraham takes the time to mourn it. But you know, there are different types of losses. It's not all just death. Yes, you might think about a a friend or a loved one or a family member, but it's not just death. There are actually all kinds of losses that we encounter throughout life. I want to name just a few of them. Psychologists would, would highlight at least three kinds of losses. There's a loss of attachments. These are relationships. When you move out of a, a, an apartment with friends and you've got new roommates, that's a loss of previous attachments. When you move to a new city, that's a loss of previous attachments. When you move to a new job and you have new co-workers, when one colleague moves on, that's a loss of an attachment. When a marriage doesn't quite work out, that's the loss of a deep attachment. When a child walks away and rejects their parent, that's a loss of an attachment. There are many kinds of losses. There's also a loss of status. And I don't think of status as a bad thing. We all find ways of gauging where we are in life. So you could, lose it. You could have lost a job and say, well, I've lo- I used to be called Captain so-and-so, General so-and-so, Major so-and-so. I used to be called Doctor. I used to be called whatever the blank might be. So, but I've lost that now. I've lost this job. I've lost this title. I've lost this influence. Maybe it comes with it, a certain loss of money. I used to have all of this in savings. Now it's gone. We used to be able to take these kinds of vacations. Now we go camping. You're like, what's wrong with camping? <laughs> Losses of influence. A lot of my Twitter friends unfollowed me. No, just kidding. Not me. Just saying, you know. It's possible loss of steps. There's also a loss of meaning that could happen. What are some of the things that give us meaning? Well, how about your own goals? You might have said, well, I thought that by the time I was 35, this was a goal for me, and it didn't happen, so I'm dealing with a loss of meaning because a goal that I had did not happen. Can anyone relate? Don't raise your hand, but can anyone relate to that, right? What about a loss of an ideal? You're like, well, I just thought that we were going to do this and we were going to go here. And instead, there have been all of these challenges along the way. It did not work out. I signed up to, to be in ministry, but man, wow, I'm dealing with the loss of an ideal. I thought it was going to be like this. It's not. Loss of meaning. There are, of those categories of losses, some of, the, some of them might be called primary losses. 
They are the thing itself. You lost the job. You lost the relationship. You lost the loved one. That's the primary loss. But counselors help us name secondary losses. There are secondary losses. For example, you might have lost a loved one five years ago, but every Thanksgiving you miss them. And every birthday and every anniversary you miss them. These are secondary losses. A father, a mother, a grandparent that wasn't able to witness graduation or a baby dedication or a wedding. Secondary losses don't stop. They keep going. And this is the thing that's difficult for us. If you've ever had a friend that's grieving, you might have been tempted to say, all right, get over it already. It's been five years. Instead of realizing there is no getting over it. There's just adjusting to a new kind of life. Uh, some people, when, I've, when I've, I've learned so much from listening to people who are in grief and learning from their stories and listening to their experiences, and a friend of mine said to me, it's a little bit like losing a limb. You don't ever you, you know, get the arm back or, or the leg back, whatever. You just sort of adjust to life without that limb. And then another friend said, actually, it's not just like losing a limb. It's like losing an invisible limb because nobody else thinks you've lost anything. Because people forget. They're like, oh, oh yeah, you, you, you did lose a parent or you, you did lose a child. They're not thinking about it the way you are. But these secondary losses keep showing up. There are one-time losses like a death or, or a firing or a divorce. And then there are ongoing losses. The kinds of losses where it's like, man, this roommate situation is like death by a thousand cuts. Just every little thing they do is nails on a chalkboard, you know. An ongoing loss. Every day it's a reminder of this aggravated relationship, this strained relationship. It's an ongoing kind of loss. Someone said to me as they were going through grief, they said, Glenn, I honestly, I don't really know how to go to church anymore because I don't quite like the songs that we sing. And they weren't talking particularly about us and new life, but there's so many of the songs are just so happy and, and, and it's fine, but, but I'm just not ready to do this, you know? <laughs> and then they started to feel guilty. And like, to be honest, I just feel a little guilty because I should want to do this. <laughs> like, but, but I don't want to do this. And so maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm a bad Christian because I don't want to worship. So, well, let's talk about the Psalms. Let's talk about how the Psalms are full of laments. Let's talk about how in 150 ancient hymns of Old Testament Israel, two-thirds of them are complaints of some form. I didn't think we should be ever negative to God. I did not. What? Two-thirds of them are a bringing of complaint. Maybe we haven't quite understood the purpose of lament. Maybe we sort of thought, well, that's just for some people, but that's not for me. Look, if you're compiling a hymn book and two-thirds of those songs you put in there are songs of sorrow and complaint and lament, maybe we're the ones missing something, right? So I want to say two things. We could go on about lament, but just for today, I want to say two things. Lament is actually proof of the relationship. When you bring your lament to God, it's because you actually believe He cares. 
Listen, you, you remember the story of the man who went to the orphanage in Romania and the most eerie sound in the world was a quiet orphanage. Why? The babies had stopped crying. Why? Because someone had stopped paying attention to their cry. The moment you stop crying is the moment you stop believing that anybody cares. Lament is the reverse of that. It says, because I know you care, I'm going to keep crying. Because I know you are my... See, the psalmist have this deep sense in them. They say, God, you are the covenant God. You are my God and I am yours. Therefore, I bring you my lament. Lament is actually proof of the relationship. You don't tell somebody something deeply painful to you unless you believe that they actually care. It's one of the signs in a marriage, by the way, that you're drifting apart is when you stop bringing your complaint to one another. Because you start to think, you don't really care if you've hurt me. You don't really care if you're doing anything. You don't even care anymore. That's the sign of a, of a marriage going down. But the sign of a healthy marriage is when you can say, I would like to share something with you because this is my complaint with you. This is my lament to you because I trust you care. Lament is proof of the relationship. But secondly, lament is a form of praise. The whole book of Psalms is called the book of praise. Now, I, I, if that was you or me, I would say that's a little poorly named, don't you think? How about the book of songs of which many of them are negative? <laughs> you know? Eeyore's songs. <laughs> I suppose. Songs of praise, that's a stretch. Why are the Psalms called the hymn book of praise because lament is a form of praise well why is lament a form of praise okay here you go have you ever called customer service have you ever been on hold and then you get passed around from one person to another person I know this is probably just my experience but when it happens sometimes I've had enough and I say excuse me may I speak to your manager or your supervisor? In other words, can I talk to someone who can do something about it? Here's why lament is a form of praise. Because you've taken your complaints up to the highest authority. And the very fact that you carry it to God is in itself praise because you are saying, God, you're the only one who can fix this. God, you're the maker of heaven and earth. And in case you haven't noticed, the world is a mess. And so I'm bringing my complaint to you because no king can fix this. No prince can fix Nobody else can. God, I'm bringing my complaint to you because you are the maker of heaven and earth. And so lament is a form of praise because you've taken your complaints all the way to the top. It bears witness to the God who can do something about it. But Abraham doesn't stop with mourning. He does something else. He honors the life. Now, I've put two things here. Honor the life or remember the good. Honor the life works when you're thinking of the loss of a loved one, a death. Remember the good works when you're mourning a different kind of loss. Okay, but watch both of these things in the chapter. Verse 3. It says, And Abraham rose from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. 
Now, this, the rest of these verses are about negotiations, okay? And, and if you're a business person, you're like, ooh, cool, ancient Near Eastern negotiations, right? The rest of you are like, okay, let's just, well, ha, ha, ha. did he close the deal or not, okay? But he, what's hard to see sometimes in the English is Abraham was asking for a permanent burial spot. And the Hittites were offering a temporary tomb. They were saying, use my tomb. In other words, use it until the body is decayed and then okay, get it out and then we, we'll keep it because it's our tomb. Abraham's like, no, 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 I want a permanent burial spot. And as the, the, the discussion goes on, the third and final phase of the negotiations happen in verse 12. Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Nobody's told him the price up to this point. And Ephraim answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? I like how he works in the price. <laughs> you know, this piece of land worth 400 pieces of silver. What is that between some friends? <laughs> it's like very subtle negotiation skills. Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Honor the life. Honoring the life of someone you've lost is costly. It's costly. This story is a bit of a foreshadow of a later story where David will try to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Do you remember this? And the, the owner of the land says, why don't you just have the land for free? And David says, what? He says, I will not offer the Lord that which costs me nothing. Before David said that, generations before David said that, Abraham said, look, I want to honor the life of my Sarah. And I'm not going to pay tribute to her with something that costs me nothing. Memories are costly. Often I think, and I've, I've been part of many funerals, some more in the, in, the, in the recent, you know, seven, eight years or so, mostly as the one presiding over the service, preaching at it. But in the years prior to that, in the seven or eight years before that, it was usually as the musician. And so I've, I've heard so many of the things we say, and sometimes we do everything we can to not have a costly memory. <laughs> We do everything we can to say, well, you know, they'll, they'll just live on. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want a book. I don't want a picture. I don't want to. But the ones who grieve well are the ones who say, I need, it's okay to have something physical to hold. It's okay to have a, a book that marks this. It's okay to have a frame. It's okay to have a, a place. Memories are costly. And Abraham knows that. A costly memory of honoring the life of someone you've lost. But then watch verse 17. And so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went at the gate of the city. Now, these locations don't mean anything to you. Mamre, blah, blah, blah. Listen, to Abraham, it meant a lot. Do you know what Mamre was? Mamre was... The place where Abraham and Sarah first got the messengers from the Lord who told them that she was going to have a son. They were reclining by the oaks of Mamre and these angels of the Lord came and gave them a word. And Sarah laughed. 
Mamre was the place of their happiest memories. To honor the life, to remember the good. You mark it. You name the best of the memories, the best of the moments. Maybe you're leaving a job and the, the ending part of it was sour. Name the best part of it. Remember the best things about it. Maybe you've changed locations. Maybe the, you've, you've moved to, to a different city. Maybe something is changing in a, in a friendship. Say, so you know what? I've named the loss. I've mourned the loss. I'm going to remember the good. There was a gift in this life. Now, it didn't last as long as I'd hoped. The job didn't stick as long as I thought. The friendship situation didn't quite pan out. Whatever the, the situation, but I'm going to remember the good of it. Abraham looks for a place by Mamre, because that's where he and Sarah shared some of their happiest moments. There's something so sweet to me about that. To say, I want to honor her life by finding the place where we were happiest together. What are some of those places for you? What are some of the ways that you can name the gift that this person was, that this job was, that this season was? Do you know, as parents, one of the hardest things as parents is you're, you're constantly dealing with ending one season and beginning the next, right? Our two older kids are right here in the front. Sophia's 11 and a half. Nora is 9, about to turn 10. They're going to turn red with embarrassment right now. And I, we love the ages that they are. But man, sometimes we look at old pictures and we're like, where did the little girls go? And so you mourn one season. You remember what was good about it. Sometimes as parents, you only remember what was good, right? You remember they're just a little tiny baby. You're like, you don't remember them throwing up. You don't remember like none of the sleep, sleepless nights. You remember what's good about it. But you gotta, you got to kind of mourn it. Honor the life, remember the good in order to move on. Some of the unhappiest people in life are those that can never recognize the good that was. They can never recognize the good that was. But I'm telling you, if you can't recognize the good that was, you won't be ready for the good that is coming. So yeah, we got to mourn it, yes. Sometimes maybe it's a defense mechanism. We're like, I don't want to remember. I don't want to call it good because if I call it good, then I'm forced to admit that I'm sad that it's gone. But it's okay. It's okay to say, you know what? Doggone it. That was good. And I'm so sad that it's over. But that was good. And I mourn the loss and remember the good. But the chapter doesn't end there. The third thing that Abraham does in verse 19, it says... The third thing that we see in this chapter, rather, is that there's hope for the promise. Verse 19, After this Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place for the Hittites. Now, if you've noticed, verse 2 and verse 19, the bookends of this chapter both remind us that this property is in where? Canaan. What's Canaan? The promised land. Now wait a minute. God promised Abraham descendants and dirt. He said you're going to have a son and he said you're going to have land. So far they've only seen the son, but they've not seen the land until Sarah dies. 
Now you know why Abraham pushed so hard to actually own a permanent burial place. This was the first bit of the promised land that Abraham owned. This was the beginning of the promise coming true. This was the partial fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would have the land of Canaan. Even in death, there is hope. Even in death, there is hope. Here it is, a chapter about mourning and grief and Sarah dying, and yet at the very end, the storyteller says, Do you see it? Do you see it? He got it. It wasn't very big. It was one field. But by golly, he got it. Possession in the promised land. More is coming. More is coming. Paul says in the, to the Ephesians, he says, look, this is what God has planned for the climax of all times. Do you know what is coming for us as Christians? He says, look, this is what's coming. God has planned to bring all things together in Christ, things in heaven along with things on earth. And then Paul says, we have also received an inheritance in Christ. It's not just Abraham who had this inheritance of land. It's us who have a spiritual inheritance. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to His design. And then skip down, Paul says, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance which is applied toward our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. Paul says, look, you know what's coming? What's coming? Not heaven. Not just that place where we go and wait and rest. No, it's better than that. You know what's coming? The day that God puts everything back together again. The day that heaven and earth become one. The day that every tear is wiped away. The day that death is swallowed up in victory. The day that the Alpha and Omega stands up and says, It is done. That's coming. And how do we know that we get a share in that? How do we know, like Abraham saying, God, how do I know that the promise will really come true? Paul says, Your down payment is the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you, and if anyone who's said yes to Christ does, then you have received the down payment of the promise. That means even in the midst of mourning the loss and honoring the life and remembering the good, you have hope for the promise. Hope for the promise. For Abraham, hope came in an unlikely place. Hope came in Sarah's grave. Like the burial site of my beloved wife is actually the first fruit of my inheritance. But maybe it's not so strange after all. Because for us as Christians, our hope also came in a grave. But unlike Sarah's grave, our hope is found in an empty tomb. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And Paul says, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, is the first fruits of the resurrection that is coming. The Nicene Creed says, look, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Hope for us is found in an empty grave because God raised Jesus from the dead. It means even as we mourn and even as we honor the life and even as we remember the good, we can look 
for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come.